This sermon was recorded at the Johnson County Congregation of Redeemer Fellowship, a church that exists to cultivate communities of transformed disciples who live for the glory of God and the good of the city. For more information, visit RedeemerKansasCity.org. Good morning. The Lord is risen. Sorry, it's hard to come down from that, all those baptisms. (laughs) Okay, our scripture today is from 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verses 20 through 28. You can find it on page 961 in your Black Pew Bible, starting at verse 20. But in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. For as by a man came death, by a man has come also the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive, but each in his own order. Christ the first fruits, then at his coming those who belong to Christ. Then comes the end when he delivers the kingdom to God the Father after destroying every rule and every authority and power. For he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. The last enemy to be destroyed is death. For God has put all things in subjection under his feet. But when it says all things are put in subjection, it is plain that he is accepted who put all things in subjection under him. When all things are subjected to him, then the Son himself will also be subjected to him who put all things in subjection under him, that God may be all in all. Hey, good morning, everyone. Happy Easter. The Lord is risen. The Lord is risen. The Lord is risen. Wow. Would you all pray with me? Holy Spirit, I ask that you would manifest your presence in this room this morning, and I ask that you would do it in a couple specific ways. Holy Spirit, would you glorify Christ this morning? Holy Spirit, would you convict us of sin this morning? Holy Spirit, would you regenerate hearts this morning? Would you free us from the bondage of guilt or the fear of death this morning? Would you comfort the weary? Would you strengthen the weak? Would you bolster our hope? Every hope that we have in Jesus Christ pierces through this life and into the next. None of it dead ends. Praise God. Spirit, would you make that alive for us this morning, I pray in the name of Jesus. Amen. Amen. Christianity is not a, a religion about Easter eggs or bunnies, or peeps. And don't get me wrong, I like and appreciate candy as much as the next person, but let me be, let me be sober this morning and say that the Christ of the Bible isn't a sentimental figure. 
He's not a nostalgic figure. He's not a life coach and he's not a consultant. He's not a mascot and he's not a sidekick. He presents himself as God. He presents himself throughout the scriptures as God in the flesh. Jesus Christ isn't a zealot and he's not a revolutionary. Jesus is not a figure of idealistic romanticism. The story of Christ in the Bible is not an opiate for the people, an opiate for the masses. In fact, I find it startling that the Apostle Paul in just a few verses later says plainly what really traps people, what numbs us, what surrounds us with a hazy fog like a drunken stupor. He says that is actually sin. 1 Corinthians 15, 34-35 says, Don't be deceived. Bad company corrupts good morals. Wake up from your drunken stupor as is right and don't go on sinning. Sin deadens us. It desensitizes us. It cheats us. It sears our conscience. Sinning anesthetizes us. The rush of sin self-medicates us. But that life is a life like a drunk person, stumbling and forgetting and having a clouded mind, dazed and confused in a stupor. And, and one thing that this sort of stupor does for us is it deadens or it abates the fear of death in our lives momentarily. The thrill that we receive from idolatry or from the bottle or from overspending or from embezzling or from revenge, the kick it gives us is a momentary distraction from the fear of death that enslaves everyone. But Jesus didn't come to anesthetize us into being some version of mindless Christian zombies. He came, he came came to set you free, 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 really free, free all the way to the bottom, free, free from lust, free from guilt, free from shame, free from the bottle, free from the pills, free from a past that haunts you, free from darkness that just doesn't seem to go away, free. Free from your own pride or your own anger. Free from disenchantment and delusion and scoffing doubt. Free from your own defenses and free from hiding in the dark. Free. Free. Hebrews 2, 14 and 15 says, Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same things. That means Jesus became flesh and blood. He partook of the same things that through death, through it, he might destroy the one that has power over death. That is the devil. And deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to life long slavery. That's why he came. That's why he came. That's what Jesus did. That's why Christians aren't kidding when they say that they bank their entire lives on the resurrection of the dead. This isn't mushy sentimentality. This isn't glossy veneer. Either I'm nuts and you should pat my head and feel sorry for me or Jesus did what he came to do. 
He did what he said he was going to do, and then he proves it on Easter Sunday by coming back from the dead, by walking out of the grave. We aren't here this morning so that we can feel good about ourselves or because we're really into pastels. We're here because if Jesus came back to life after he was tortured and crucified, then nothing in your life matters like that matters. I don't know what kind of life you've lived, but the darkness in this world is too dark for me to be duped with warm and fuzzy sentimentality or platitudes. The pain I encounter in this world is too painful to be healed by a trip to the day spa. The loneliness in this world that I encounter is too lonely to be cured with the newest iPhone or a new car or another house or another garage. And that's why Jesus doesn't promise that kind of stuff because he knows it doesn't work that way. He knows you don't work that way. That's not what you need. What you need is the same thing that I need and it's to see Jesus. You need to know him. I need to know Jesus. You need to know Jesus. And if you've met him, if you've met him, then you need to see him again. And you need to see him again. And you need to see him again and again and again and again. Listen, the increase of Jesus' glory in your experience in this life is limitless. Limitless. You'll never exhaust his glory. He can be more important to you today than he was yesterday for every day of the remaining days of the rest of your life. He's the only thing that works that way. He doesn't get old like our toys get old. And his majesty doesn't diminish. His brilliance is bottomless. His goodness is inexhaustible. His love for you is unending, unlimited, and immeasurable. And your heart can actually expand and get bigger and get a greater capacity to love that to enjoy that, to enjoy the glories of Christ, the treasures of Christ in real time in this life. And the opportunities are never ending. In the Gospel of John, Jesus goes up to a man who can't walk. He's camped out next to this pool that's supposed to have healing powers. And Jesus looks at this guy and he says, hey, do you want to be well? Do you want to be well? Do you want to be healed? That's what Jesus Christ is saying to us this morning right now. Do you want to be whole? Do you want to be well? Because only Jesus can do that. And the resurrection of Jesus Christ is the proof in the pudding. That he has all the power, just like you experience the pain and misery of sin in this life through one man, Adam, resurrection life, through Jesus Christ, you can be made alive. And that's my entire sermon in one sentence. In Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive. I have three, I have three movements today. The first one is, by a man came death. The second is by a man has come the resurrection of the dead. And then through Christ, death does not reign. Point number one, in Adam, all die. 
Romans 5, 12 through 14 sheds more light on our text today when it says, therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man and death through sin, and so death spread, death spread to all men for all sinned. And for sin indeed was in the world before the law was given. But sin is not counted where there is no law, yet death reigned from the point of Adam all the way through when the law came, when we get to Moses. Death reigned from Adam to Moses, even over those whose sinning was not like the transgression of Adam, who was a type, who was a type of the one who is to come. In Adam, in Adam, all die, is how our text says it today. And so death reigns. Death reigns through sin. This is the world that you and I live in. We live in a world with funerals and fractures and pain and disease and death. In this world, we see the reign of death. We see the power of death. We feel the weight of death. And our text and Romans 5 explains to us, explains to us why death exists at all. What's the origin of death? And the answer The answer that comes to us from the apostle is an explanation of representative sin. Adam, in the form of a representative, in the form of representative headship, sinned and thereby transmitted sin to the entire human race. And the most irrefutable evidence isn't that you tell lies to your boss or that you lose your temper and pop off to your kids. The most obvious evidence that we sin and that we're sinners isn't that prisons are overcrowded or that you don't have to teach your children to disobey. You don't even have to teach them to covet. They just see a child playing with something that they want and they're pretty sure that that means that they should have it, right? You don't have to teach them to do that. They come pre-programmed to know how, how to do it. And that isn't the most compelling evidence that sin is inside all of us. The most compelling evidence for sin isn't even our failures to live up to our own values or our own ideas. We all try to improve ourselves. We try to keep promises or keep commitments. We try to keep a a commitment to love certain people in our lives. And then we violate them all the time. We break promises all the time. We hurt people that we say are the most dear to us. We hurt and say awful things to the people in our lives that we claim to love the most. And that's not, that's not the most conspicuous evidence that sins in the world and inside of all of us. Photojournalists write entire books about the fact that even the most heinous of individuals who are guilty of the worst things, the most cruel and wicked, even people whose job it is to torture other people, those kinds of monsters are normal people. They're normal people. They eat cookies and they like to read bedtime stories to their kids. And as wild or hard as that is to believe, the existence of murderers and rapists and genocidal tyrants isn't the most compelling and clear evidence that sin reigns in this life. The most clear, the most compelling and irrefutable evidence of sin is death itself. It's everywhere. 
The very existence of death at all is evidence of what happens after sin happens. Death is everywhere and has been everywhere since forever. The point of this section of Romans 5 is to explain why death's in charge. No one can cheat death. Nobody, nobody's going to be able to avoid death. No one can get around death. You're not going to find a loophole here. You're going to die. We're all going to die. In the end, death wins. You might be old or you might be young. You might fancy yourself a good person. You might be a bad person. Death still wins. You might be famous or infamous. Death wins. Generous or greedy. Death wins. Alone or surrounded by friends. Death wins. In the end, no matter what you do in this life, no matter what good you do, no matter what evil you do, we'll all face the unchangeable, inescapable reality of physical death. And Christians know that death is because of sin. We all die because we all have the spiritual blood of Adam running through our veins. By one man's trespass, the whole race became sinners. And death reigns today because of that sin, which means, which means our need for Jesus Christ, your need for Jesus, my need for Jesus, my desperate need for Jesus is as ubiquitous as death itself. I'm a sinner the same way that I'm a dyer. Same thing. And I'm a sinner, and the proof is, is that I'm going to die. This and more is what is packed into those four words. In Adam, all die. But, but, point number two, by one man has come the resurrection of the dead. The Lord is risen. He is risen indeed. There's a dynamic at play in the resurrection of Jesus Christ that actually isn't unprecedented. You see, in Adam, death is passed down to all of us because we're all descendants of Adam. We're all in Adam in that respect. And for those that are in the same respect in Christ, resurrection is passed down to everyone, to all of us. But this isn't some fairy tale about discovering the fountain of youth. This isn't some mythology about discovering the keys to immortality. This isn't some kind of mirror, mirror on the wall kind of make-believe. The resurrection of Jesus Christ is the first example of full cosmic, of complete, of total renewal and reconfiguration and recreation of the entire universe. Christians don't celebrate Easter so that they can have an extra day to dress up fancy and take family photos. Christians don't celebrate Easter because we want to have a day where we can act holier than everybody else. Christians don't even celebrate Easter to remember their own sin. Christians don't celebrate Easter to feel good about themselves. Christians celebrate Easter to announce and to proclaim and to tell the world that death doesn't win anymore. The resurrection of Jesus Christ is not a cute little corner of Christian theology. 
Just a few verses earlier in this text, Paul actually says, if in Christ we have hope in this life only, we are of all people the most to be pitied, the most to be placated. Christianity isn't a philanthropic endeavor. Christianity isn't some kind of pay it forward, feel good about yourself program. The entire reality of God and his creation is built on top of this day, built on top of Easter Sunday, the resurrection of the son of God. All Christian hope is built on the resurrection. All Christian love is built on the resurrection. All forgiveness, all reconciliation is built on the resurrection. That's why this chapter will end a little bit later and say, hey, your labor isn't in vain. It's because of the resurrection that it's not in vain. It travels right through death and lasts. You can have confidence in your status as a son or a daughter because Jesus came back from the dead. You can have courage to pour out your whole life as a drink offering because Jesus came back from the dead. You can have peace right in the middle of the worst tribulation because Jesus comes back from the dead. You can have joy when the world hates you because Jesus came back from the dead. You can have comfort in the middle of utter betrayal from the people who are supposed to love you the most because Jesus Christ came back from the dead. Jesus didn't stay dead. He got up. And now death doesn't win anymore. Jesus wins. The resurrection of Jesus Christ reorients the entire trajectory of your life. The resurrection of Jesus Christ charts a different course for you, a different end. I don't care where you've been or what you've done. And he doesn't care whether or not you're rich or poor, smart or dumb, tall or short, fat or skinny. The resurrection of Jesus picks you up where you are and sets your feet on a different trajectory for a different future. And it's glorious. And you stare into the eyes of death, just like we all have to do. You can look right at the grip of physical death and know, and know this is not the end. Jesus' life, Jesus' death, and his resurrection life can be yours. We can be murdered or martyred or maligned or hated in this life. And for the Christian, there's a life to come. We can lose everything because if we have Jesus, we have everything and he will never let you go. We can be broke. We can be bankrupt. We can be totally finished. But Jesus didn't come for the fancy and buttoned up anyways. He didn't come for the arrogant or the proud. The Bible says that he came. The Bible says Jesus told everyone, I'm here for sick people. I'm, I'm here for the sick. And that's a way of saying that he only came for people who realize that they need him. And this guy loves that because I'm sick. I'm terminal. I have a lot of sin in my life and my heart. I have pride. I have selfish motives. I have fearful shame and guilt. I have assaulting regret 
And I need, I need a doctor. I need a doctor. And Jesus says he came for anyone who will come to him. Anyone. But if you come to him, you don't get to decide how much of him you're going to get. That's not up to us. He's in charge of our whole life or he won't be a part of any of it. Jesus is the first example of resurrection and a whole people will follow in his footsteps. And that's where history's headed. And the Christian exists with Christ as Lord, as Christ as Lord of their life now and looking for the day when his lordship is completely established, fully manifested, completely consummated. And through Christ, death doesn't reign anymore. Anymore. 1 Corinthians 15, 45 through 49 says this. Thus it is written, the first man, Adam, was a living being. The last, Adam, became a life-giving spirit. But it is not the spiritual that is first, but the natural, and then the spiritual. The first man was from the earth, a man of dust. The second man is from heaven. As was the man of dust, so also are those who are made of dust. And as is the man of heaven, so also are those who are of heaven. Just as we have been born the image of the man of dust, we shall also bear the image of the man of heaven. That's the point today. We all bear that same image. We all bear the image of the man of dust. We all bear the same sin that Adam had in himself. But we shall bear the image of the man from heaven. Jesus is the last Adam. He's the new Adam. And anyone that is united to Christ will participate in this same kind of resurrection. Jesus is king, and there's coming a day when the full manifestation of his kingly rule and authority will be everywhere. And that promise is sealed for us because of the resurrection. The same way that Jesus conquers death, he will conquer death for you. The same way that Jesus was resurrected from death, at his coming, all those who belong to Christ will be made alive. That is why the Christian can face death with confidence. This is why Christians can be freed from the slavery of the fear of death. Their lives don't have to be ruled by fear. Their lives don't have to be ruled by the fear of death. Death isn't the end. Death doesn't win anymore. Friends, death has lost the battle. Oh, death, where is your victory? Death, where is your sting? The answer is gone. It's gone. This world's oriented around both the reality of death and the fear of death. And if you give your life to Christ, not even death can control you. Not even death can compel you. Not even death can influence you. That is the foundational eschatological confidence of the believer. It's why historically Christians run straight at every crisis that this world has ever experienced. It's why they're willing to suffer. It's why they're willing to die. And it's why they hold fast to the gospel. Chapter 15 of 1 Corinthians ends this way. 
It says, therefore, therefore, everything that's come before in chapter 15, it says, therefore, because of what I've been saying to you, therefore, my beloved brothers, be steadfast, be immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord, your labor's not in vain. You see, all our effort and all our hopes and all our longing and all our prayers for wayward, wayward children, everything, every love, every sacrifice, every gracious uh, reconciliation of friendships, every laying down of our rights, it doesn't stop at death for the believer. It goes straight through it. It Last, Therefore, you know your labor isn't in vain. That's how it works. Whether or not you're immovable will depend on whether or not you understand that what you're up to doesn't have an expiration date. The resurrection is the grounds of labor that lasts forever. Forever. Be steadfast because this life isn't the end. Be steadfast because labor for Christ is labor that makes it into the new creation. We can abound in the works of the Lord because work for the Lord is work that doesn't get eaten up by physical death. It lives on. It lives on. Ephesians, Ephesians 1, 13 and 14 explains, in him also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation and believed in him, you were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantor of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory. Christ is coming again. And right now, he said, it's better that I go than that I stay. It's better that I go so that you can have the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit in believers is that deposit now for a future glory that's guaranteed. We have the Holy Spirit now. That's the deposit for our final and complete inheritance in Christ. At the second coming of Christ, he will finish everything that he started at the resurrection. At Christ's coming, he will usher in a new heavens and a new earth. Jesus reigns right now, and he will, in that day, destroy every rule, and he'll destroy every authority. He'll destroy every power, everything that sets itself up against your love and devotion to Jesus Christ will be obliterated, destroyed. Jesus Christ reigns now, and one day he will reign completely. But that's for next week. For today, the Lord is risen. The Lord is risen. The Lord is risen. Therefore, my beloved brothers, be steadfast, be immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord because your labor isn't in vain. Just like the crucifixion wasn't in vain. Praise God. And, and this is eternal life that we know the only true God and we know Jesus Christ whom he is. 
sent. We're going to move at this time in our service to celebrate communion. And before I give instructions, before I do anything else, I'm going to read from 1 Corinthians chapter 11, which explains what we're up to. For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, on the night when he was betrayed, took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it. When he had given thanks, he broke it. And he said, this is my body. My body is for you. My body is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And in the same way also, he took the cup after supper, saying, this cup, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes again. We take communion every week to proclaim the Lord's death until he comes again. And we don't just proclaim it to the watching world. We actually look into each other's eyes and proclaim it to each other every week because we need to hear it again every single week. This is his body that's broken for you, church. And this is his blood that is shed for you to walk in newness of life. The way we do uh, communion here at Redeemer Fellowship is we break a piece of bread off and we dip it into a cup. The stoneware cups are wine and the glassware is juice. There'll be stations, one to my right and one to my left, and then one further to the left here that is gluten-free and single serve. And we'll also have prayer ministers that are over on this side next to the drum set that would love to pray for anybody for anything, anytime. Now, at Redeemer, uh, we have communion open to anybody who can say what, uh, what they said this morning. They can say, that, are you trusting in Jesus for your righteousness? Are you trusting in Christ and Christ alone to make you right before God? If that's you, we invite you to eat in faith and to celebrate and proclaim it with us. And if it's not you, man, we're so glad that you're here. We're honored to have you. We're blessed and honored that you're here. But don't take this meal with us. We have prayers in the worship guide, or we have prayers in the, uh, in the pew in front of you. Maybe pray a prayer for the first time, or ask Jesus to reveal himself to you. We'd way rather you take Jesus than, than take this meal. I'm going to pray for us and invite the servers up and invite the musicians back up. Would all of you join me as I pray? Holy Spirit, I ask that you would uh, manifest your presence in this room this morning. And I ask that you would do it in a couple different ways. Holy Spirit, I ask that you would comfort the weary, the despairing, the despondent. Holy Spirit, would you comfort those folks in this room? Would you uphold them? Would you strengthen them with your grace? Holy Spirit, I pray for the prideful. I pray for, I pray that you would manifest your presence in uh, spiritual conviction the way that only you can. Would you convict our hearts of sin in our lives so that we can be free, not so that we can be self-righteous, not so that, the, so that we can be legalistic, not so that we can feel better than everybody else. Would you convict us of sin so that we can be free from it, so we can be free? Holy Spirit, I ask that you would bolster hope in this room. And Holy Spirit, I ask that you would strengthen faith in this room. Give us the faith to eat in faith. I pray in the name of Jesus. Amen.